This afternoon, congregation will deal with Lord's Day 41 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 41, where we confess the seventh commandment. And there we confess the word of God as follows. What does God forbid in the eighth commandment? Sorry, what does the seventh commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined life both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. So far, our confession. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, boys and girls who are the Lord's, you maybe recall from last Sunday yet how Matthew in Matthew 5, the Lord Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount explained the, the depth of the sixth commandment of the law. Because the, the Pharisees and teachers in those days taught the, the literal sense of the law. They were, they were legalists. As long as you hadn't actually murdered or hurt anyone, shed any blood, you were, you were righteous before God. And they did, they of course taught that because they were self-righteous. They wanted to make themselves righteous before God. So they interpreted the law as narrowly as possible, and then they were under the impression that they could fulfill the law themselves, and they really didn't need Christ. The Lord Jesus, on the other hand, in his Sermon on the Mount, interpreted the law as broadly as possible. He brought, he brought the heart into the picture, what lives in the heart. Sins of deeds are born in the heart, or sins of the heart in the first place. And so Jesus said that cherishing anger against a brother or sister in one's heart or in scorn calling him or her a fool, not doing what you can to reconcile with him or her. They, they are things that are just as subject to judgment in God's sight as actual murder itself, the shedding of blood. And so the Lord Jesus brings us into the depth of the law, the reality of the law. And then the way he does that, we all have to come to admit that we're inclined to the same kind of self-righteousness as those Pharisees and teachers of the law in Jesus' days on earth. Because quite often we think we have fulfilled a commandment or so, but Jesus shows that we have made ourselves over time just as liable to judgment in regards to the sixth commandment as someone who actually sheds blood. And Jesus did not show the depth of that commandment in order to depress us. 
he explained it in order that we seek him, that we realize we need him who was put to death for us. And also so that we keep praying fervently for the renewal of his spirit, that we don't let a day go by without praying for, for repentance and renewal. Well, all of that also applies to the seventh commandment as Jesus taught it in Matthew 5, 27 to 30, which we read together. And I preached to you from that passage as we also confess it in Lord's Day 41 of the Heidelberg Catechism. This theme, Jesus shows that the seventh commandment also forbids lust. And he teaches three things we, we learn from that. Lust instead of love, the trouble with lust, and overcoming lust. So first of all, lust instead of love. Interestingly, congregation, at the time Jesus was on earth, I read somewhere that the rabbis put all the blame for lustful thoughts and acts on the woman. She was the culprit, not the man, the woman. Although the man was sinful, he was just the victim here. Now, the position of women in Israel was better than in the surrounding pagan countries, and that was because of God's revelation. From the scriptures, the children of Israel knew that Eve was also created in the image of God. They knew that the woman was man's equal, given to him not as a, as a slave, but, or even as a sexual slave, but as a suitable helper and a companion, a fit companion. Because of God's word, the women of Israel, as compared to the women of the pagan world uh, around Israel, the women in Israel had a, a better status. Think, for instance, of the role of many women, the, the role many women played in the history of salvation. However, the rabbis, the teachers, and the Pharisees in Jesus' days did not regard women with a lot of respect. The worst ones apparently went as far, uh, as far as to start off each day with the prayer, thank you, God, that I was not born a woman. Furthermore, according to the Talmud, the Jewish book of rules that the rabbis had drawn up, they were of the opinion that a man should not have any private conversation with a woman other than his wife. They thought it would be dangerous because in their eyes, all women were seducers. And it was dangerous then. So when it comes to lust, the Jewish teachers during Jesus' time on earth sadly put the blame on the woman. Today, a lot of cultures and, and religions still blame the woman for lustful thoughts and acts. Muslim extremists think that way, and that's why, you know, they're, the women in Afghanistan should wear some kind of head covering like the hijab, and, and in Pakistan, or even a burqa, baggy cloak covers their whole bodies, even the face. And in some Muslim countries, women are not allowed out of the house without a male chaperone. But Jesus took a different approach to women. If you look at the Bible as a whole, he didn't treat women as the seductive creatures that the rabbis said they were. Remember the time Jesus openly had the one-to-one -one conversation with the woman at the, the well, the Samaritan woman at the well in Sychar. 
None of Jesus' disciples dared ask him about this, and yet they were quite surprised to find him talking with this woman. And Jesus had a lot of uh, women friends who supported him with their, with their goods, served him with their, their income. He often stayed at the house of Martha and Mary, considered them to be his friends too. He, he spoke with prostitutes. There were women at the cross, and women were the first visitors at the empty tomb Easter morning. So while Jesus and his apostles they, they ascribed specific roles for women in family and church. They saw women as equal to men in respect to salvation before God. Paul wrote about that in Galatians 3.28, In Christ there is neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ. Well, in our scripture passage then you realize how much Jesus turned on its head the teachings of the rabbis about lust, lustful, evil, sexual desires. He says in Matthew 5, 28, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He addresses the men here, for that, for the reason we spoke of before. He, he focuses on that. Of course, in this respect, women can also be guilty of looking with lust. But Jesus didn't mention that over against the teachings of the Pharisees. He emphasized the equal fallenness of men and women. And when you take what the Bible says into account, the whole Bible, you realize that, that lust is actually a perversion of love. The lust that Jesus is talking about here, sexual lust, it's a perversion of love. In love, put aside our own needs and gratification, we seek the joy and the fulfillment of others, the other. But with lust, we put aside the needs and happiness of others and seek our, only our own fulfillment our own pleasure. And looking with lust is then looking only with desire to gratify yourself, your own sexual desire. And as such you realize lust is the result of the demonic twisting of love. It's only when we're converted by the Spirit and made new in Christ that we will truly be motivated by love rather than by lust. We have to learn to love because our sinful nature wants us to lust. Wants only to gratify the self. That's how the Apostle Paul writes, Ephesians 4, 22 and 23. He says, put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You realize, congregation, that we all have to deal with lusts and sinful sexual passions in ourselves. We all want to use others for ourselves. Though we're made new in Christ, the old man, the old nature still lives in us. 
And as, as long as we live in this body and here on this earth, the old nature and the new nature, the, the old man of sin and the new man of the spirit are, are at war inside us. And it's not until we're done with this life that the demons of sexual lust are finally driven out. And we're filled with love, true love. All this, of course, runs contrary to the message given by the world we live in, which lives without God. Through movies, magazines, books, even advertisements, the world displays lust as a good thing. This is a lot of fun. Safe, it's safe, it's harmless. Sex is portrayed as simply a function of the body, a drive that man shares with the, with the beasts, like eating, drinking, sleeping, a physical demand that has to be satisfied, and if you don't satisfy it, you're gonna end up with all kinds of neuroses. So throw away your inhibitions, find somebody who's like-minded, and, and let yourself go. Find satisfaction. But brothers and sisters, that's pure lust, sexual lust. It's looking to use someone else to satisfy your sexual desires. It has nothing at all to do with love, actually. And sadly, that's, that's that what that world of pornography and soft porn and advertising, books, movies, that's what they promote. They promote lust. They call it love, but it's lust. And, and Jesus says that looking lustfully, to keep looking, because the imperfect tense is used there, keep looking with desire to use for one's own sexual gratification, that Nobody else might see that exactly, but it's sin against the seventh commandment in your heart. And then it's sin. He warns about this sin because lust like that is the opposite of love. Lust focuses on the self rather than on the other. And that brings us to the second point of the sermon this afternoon, the trouble with lust. Lust... The main trouble with lust is that it's destructive. Destructive to the self. You think you're, you're satisfying yourself, but in actual fact, you're destroying yourself. Man or woman caught up in lust is caught up in an illusion. And then you can think here of, of the attraction of pornography, for instance, internet pornography. It's, it's self-destruction. It's self they mistakenly, someone who looks at that mistakenly thinks that they're satisfying their lusts and that it'll lead to fulfillment, but lust is one appetite that's never going to be satisfied. To feed lust is to generate an ever greater hunger for its gratification. Lust wants more and needs more all the time to be satisfied. There's a progression in that. So it starts off with soft core, soft pornography, occasional peek at internet porn or something like that. 
And then the next step is hardcore porn, sex videos, stripper joints. And if lust remains unchecked, it eventually becomes an addiction. And the person who yields to it finds the more the lust is fed, the more demanding it becomes. It's the exact opposite of love in this then. We read about that in 1 Corinthians 13. What love is. For one thing, love does not seek itself. It does not seek its own. It does not parade itself. And congregation, love never fails, we read. But lust is an illusion. It'll fail you. It always fails. It fails to satisfy, to deliver what it promises. Lust is also a sign of immaturity. In that great love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul points out that love is mature, declares that comes a time when we stop being children and act like adults. You know, in, in verse 11, it says in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. There's a maturity that has to come. Lust keeps you immature. It's a childish thing. This is particularly evident as it expresses itself in the lives of people who have married. If there, there has been lust all along and sexual relations with various partners before the marriage and there is no real repentance, then such, if such a person marries, they're quite vulnerable to extramarital relationships because they still have that lust. Always comparing their marriage partner with others. You know, I wonder what it would be like to have sexual relations with that person. Or I wonder if I'd be happier married to that person. But brothers and sisters, young people, when two people have settled in their minds that they're going to love and be true to each other, and they're going to make that vow before God and, and witnesses, that has to put an end to the practice of comparing you don't compare your spouse to another man or woman wondering, what if, what if you had married that other person instead? No, you stick with and rejoice in the choice you have made. That's your promise. You focus on giving yourself to your spouse, making their life good with you, edifying them in every way you can, spiritually too. See, the, the inability to live with your choices is one of the marks of immaturity. Think of a child in an ice cream store. So many choices, they can't make up their mind which flavor they want to choose. And then they have, when they've chosen a certain flavor, yeah, that's the one I want, then they have second thoughts and they wonder if they should have chosen the, the, the other flavor instead. Maybe that one was better tasting. I wonder what, would it, what that one would have tasted like. Inability to live and work with what you've chosen is behavior that belongs with someone who is five or seven years old, but not fitting for someone married who's 25, 35, or 45 years old. By that age, people should have made the, make the, be able to make the decision and to live with and work with their decisions, their choices. 
But see, and that's the problem with lust shows immature behavior. Never satisfied, never contented, always looking for self-gratification elsewhere, and in their hearts, actually untrue to their marriage vow, and continually reject and regret their choice, and wish they had chosen someone or some, someone else. Oh, there, there's, a, there's a kind of maturing with lust too. We already kind of touched on that. Listen to what it says in James 1, 14 and 15. James writes, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So there you have a, a maturing there too. The Greek word for desire, by the way, is the same word used in Matthew 5 for lust. That's that, there's that maturing of lust too. It begins in the heart. Begins in the heart. With selfish, sexual desires in the heart. And it's not wrong to have sexual desire in itself. God made us that way. But sexual desire that only looks for one's own sexual gratification with no thought for the other, for the benefit and good of the other person, that is sinful desire. That is lust. Well, lust in your heart brings you into temptation. Looking lustfully at someone or looking lustfully at pornography gives birth to sin. It will mature. It doesn't stop. It makes vulnerable to sin, to acting without thinking about the consequences. And then people become fools. They, they act on their emotions instead of thinking things through. And they throw away their good name, their position, their job in the family, all to satisfy their lust. All for a moment of selfish sexual gratification. And I wouldn't be able to count how many murders haven't been committed for selfish sexual gratification. Unbelievable the ruin caused by yielding to lust. And you can think here of the examples in the Bible. Samson forfeiting his strength given by the Lord for the benefit of Israel, forfeiting all that for the sake of his lust for Delilah. Think of David destroying the glory of his kingship and the peace in his family, and the stability in his kingdom, destroying all that in his selfish sexual lust for Bathsheba. Lust drives people eventually to foolish things, not in their right minds. And once caught in the web of sin, that sin will bring forth death it says in James 1, that is the end of it, death. And that means eternal exclusion from the presence of God unless there's heartfelt repentance and putting to death that lust, that adultery in the heart. Hell, the Lord Jesus says. No congregation, lust. Lust is destructive. It leads to death. And therefore, we have to repent of the selfish desires that live in our hearts. And that means seek the forgiveness of Christ.
and then also take up the fight against such breaking of the seventh commandment in your heart. And that brings us to the last part of the sermon this afternoon, overcoming lust. The struggle against lust, brothers and sisters, begins with the Lord Jesus. We need the blood of Christ to be forgiven the sin that we're born with in our hearts as well as the sins that we commit. We need that spirit of Christ to renew our hearts and to equip us to fight against this sin. And by faith, we need to be united to Christ in his burial and resurrection so that we become dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Remember that we're in the third part of the catechism here. That means that belonging to Christ means that we ourselves will want to work for the purification of our hearts and minds and lives too. What you and I have to do is to love, to fight to love, and to fight not to lust. What you and I need to do is to work with the spirit, to put to death the old nature and to bring to life the new nature. Press, pressing towards maturity in Christ, growing up in Christ, becoming more and more what Christ redeemed us to become. And that's, that's not an easy battle to fight in the sexualized world in which we live today, right? Lust gives us pleasure that we sometimes love more than we love Jesus. So to have victory over lust, we need to want to be free of its grip on us. We're not our own. We belong with body and soul to Jesus Christ who bought us with his precious blood. So, so what do we need to do then? Well, Jesus explains that in the verses 29 and 30 of Matthew 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And then you realize, of course, that it's not Jesus' intention to say that we have to mutilate ourselves by actually plucking out the eye and cutting off the hand. Jesus' intention is to emphasize the necessity of getting rid of whatever inflames our lust. And that can be painful. As painful as plucking out of the eye and cutting off the hand. Now notice that Jesus talks about the eye and the hand. The sin begins in the eye with the looking. And it goes to the hand eventually. So the temptations come by way of the eyes. It's all too easy to look at a woman or a man lustfully or to dress in such a way that others look at us lustfully. Watch what you wear, young ladies. Watch what you wear. Modest dress mentioned in the New Testament a number of times for good reason. Short, tight clothing is an expression of lust and a provocation to lust in the world we live in. While the Lord Jesus calls in the Sermon on the Mount to avoid 
lust, anything to do with it. The fires of lust could also be fed by books which describe sexual relationships in detail and magazines and internet sites displaying famous stars in provocative dress and poses. Think about the internet. For, just think about the internet. Connects us with so much. You, you most likely all know that you can find every kind of sexual perversion on the internet. In, on sites, in chat rooms, social networking sites, it's all readily available to all. Talking about it at home, setting controls on your computer's internet connection and keeping the computer in a public location in the home are all good measures to help. But ultimately, that plucking of the eye is also a matter of the heart. Deciding in your heart that you and your mouse will serve the Lord. It's like quitting smoking. I've compared it to quitting smoking. You can use all kinds of helps and patches and, and other things, but they're not going to bring you to actually stop smoking unless you decided in your heart that you don't want to do that anymore. And that's how it is with pornography too. You make a covenant with your eyes not to look with lust. You got that from Job. Jesus also mentions the right hand. The right hand was usually the hand you, you act with, the strong hand. And hands are often the instruments with which we act sinfully. Touch or want others to touch what may not be touched. Grasp what others grasp or want others to grasp what may not be grasped. All that demands restraint. Or metaphorically, cutting off the hand. Think of young couples going out. We need to shun anything that stimulates the sin of lust in ourselves or others. Sin against the seventh commandment. Instead, use the hands for good. Take the Bible and open it with your hand in order to grow in Christ. Or use the hand to help others. When it comes right down to it, the best thing to do with our hands and our eyes is to fold the hands and close the eyes and pray for the strength and the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that's the only real remedy for the sin of lust, of sexual lust. We have to realize on, on our own congregation, we're powerless, really, on our own to fight sin and evil and lust in particular, relying on our own strength. We all, all we, we end up doing is falling further and further into sin. And the end of that is death. Hell, as Jesus says plainly. Ask, we have to ask for the, for the strength to deny ourselves, to crucify our old nature, and let the new nature come to life in us, renewed after the image of Christ. The nature that seeks to love God and love the neighbor, not to use them for the self. To be changed and strengthened by the grace and power and strength of God, that's what we have to keep asking for, congregation. Love instead of lust. That's what the Lord redeemed you and me for. Not to lust 
after others, but to love others. But you realize because of sin, it's going to be an ongoing battle here, not to look or act with lust. However, the Bible tells us that those who are willing to carry the cross of putting that old nature off and putting on that new nature, they're on the way to becoming more and more as the Lord intends them to be and will make them in the future. And then when we, when we leave this life, the Spirit who lived in us here will present us to Christ without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless, and then will be loved beyond what we can believe now and be able to love perfectly 